0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 34. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On this special episode, I'm going to be talking with the one and only Matt Bromley about Operation Medusa, the recent FBI takedown of the Russian malware known as SNAKE. Welcome to the special edition of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. I'm here with the one and only Matt Bromley and instead of talking about emerging intel as we normally would we're going to be taking a closer look at the russian malware known as snake how you doing today matt
1: hey chris what's going on yes today we are th- th- talking about the snake malware <laughs> the russian intelligence i don't know other words to use i want to say things like multi-headed multi-pronged super secret stealthy two decade long malware infection known as snake but yeah adjectives aside Uh, Looking forward to this, a really special edition here where we get to focus in probably one of the biggest takedowns that we've seen in quite a while.
0: Yeah, if you're listening to this, then you probably have a pretty good idea of what happened at a high level, but I'll quickly go over it before we get into it. Here are the highlights. On May 8th, 2023, the FBI executed a court-authorized operation codenamed Operation Medusa. The operation resulted in the takedown of a global peer-to-peer network of computers compromised by sophisticated malware called SNAKE. This malware has been in operation for almost 20 years, and it was operated by a unit within Center 16 of the Federal Security Service of the Russian Federation, or FSB. The FSB, of course, is the post-Soviet-era version of the KGB. This unit of the FSB conducting these operations is referred to as Turla in the court documents and has used different versions of the snake malware to steal sensitive information from hundreds, if not thousands, of computer systems in at least 50 countries many of them NATO countries. As detailed in the court documents, the U.S. government has been investigating SNAKE and SNAKE-related malware tools for nearly 20 years. The U.S. government has monitored FSB officers assigned to Turla conducting daily operations using SNAKE from a known FSB facility in Ryzon, Russia. The targets of this espionage have ranged from governments to journalists to other targets of interest of the Russian Federation, The data from this espionage was exfiltrated through a covert network of snake-compromised computers in the United States and around the world. This is a major takedown of a very well-funded and long-running espionage program. Can you remember anything like this, Matt?
1: Yeah, so this is probably very similar to some of the other FBI, or from a U.S. perspective, some of the other FBI takedowns from a global perspective, coordinated joint efforts and things. I would akin this very similar from a takedown perspective to things that we've seen done kind of on the ransomware front or the, you know, group related front where we see FBI takedowns of, you know, ransomware groups where we see them take down kind of cryptocurrency things. There was the Hive ransomware variant takedown that occurred in January of 2023. You know, these are coordinated efforts where a global intelligence teams come together and share their indicators, share what they know, share the things that they've learned over time, and then really work together to coordinate a, a massive takedown of, you know, all of the different networks or all of the different systems or the systems that they know about all at the same time. So I think that we've seen coordinated takedowns as a thing very, very recently and and into the past as well. Where this one tends to differ from others, and maybe I would say it's not not alone, it's not unique, but it's certainly not as common to see massive state-ran espionage programs being taken down in this way. You know, we'll see things such as advisories, we've seen in the past private companies release information about certain groups, uh, I'll name Mandiant, uh, you know, when Mandiant comes out with a really big APT report or a threat actor graduation or things like that, you know, that's usually what we see from that state espionage level is we see kind of a revealing of indicators or the naming of a group. In this case, where it differs a little bit is we've got a DOJ announcement, a CISA or a CISA advisory kind of leading the charge on this one. And I think this is probably the most significant part of it is that this was a coordinated intelligence and law enforcement effort in order to uncover, get all the details in place, and then subsequently take down some of these systems that were involved. So I, I think it's a little bit of both worlds, Chris. I think we've seen definitely global coordinated takedown efforts happen before. But again, the fact that it is a global takedown of a state-sponsored or what feels like a state nexus espionage program is adding definitely a little more oomph, a little more emphasis to just how critical of a a takedown this is.
0: Yeah, from what I was reading, I didn't name it specifically, but I imagine like the five eyes were involved, intelligence sharing and government to government cooperation all over the place.
1: Yeah, 100%. Actually, I believe the CISA advisory, and I apologize if I'm not pronouncing CISA correctly, but I've always just kind of referred to it this way because CISA and CISO but in any event, I believe the CIS advisory had all the Five Eyes logos and everything across it. They might have even named them, but uh, I'm looking at it here. The impacted regions from this included North America, South America, Europe, Africa, Asia, and Australia. You know, they, they posited about over 50 countries in those different areas were involved. And I mean, this is a global implementation that takes place. You're not going to have any success if you don't have global involvement either. So, without a doubt, uh, there certainly was a, a global involvement on this, and I think that also adds a little more emphasis to it as well. Is the fact that it was just such a big thing that it involved everybody and and everyone had a part of this. I will say, I know we're going to get into the malware and we're going to dig into it a little bit, but one of the more exciting parts about reading reports like this and seeing how all of this came together is you'll have these multiple different agencies and these different organizations and everything like that read through this, and then they'll start to compare notes. And they'll start to say, oh, you know, I've seen this and I've seen that. And someone will maybe have a missing puzzle piece somewhere else, and you'll start to uncover. And this is really where intelligence becomes super powerful, is you start to see lots of different moving pieces be brought together. And then that's when, you know, almost... No one's fumbling around in the dark anymore. The light switch gets turned on and poof, now we've got a a really good eye as to what's happening.
0: And that's really one of the driving force behind this movement to try and get people to share intelligence more freely instead of treating it as IP for an individual company. You know, it just benefits everybody if we're able to share this information in a way that lets us put those pieces together. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And it's, It's a huge, really, really cool thing to see. And I'm always a fan of these coordinated efforts like this. I, I truly believe that the best cybersecurity is going to come when everyone works together and we get information sharing and we don't imagine silos or walls. We work with other organizations to find ways to uncover threats, discover malware, share notes and things like that. And then this is a perfect case of seeing that here.
0: Yeah. To complete the mission, right? Yes, Exactly. The way they ended up taking all this down is really fascinating, and we'll talk about that later, but I want to kind of dive into the malware first. So the initial infection or, you know, product release for this malware would have been around 20 years ago. This was a time when the internet was going mainstream and peer-to-peer file sharing was just becoming a thing. I don't think there was any real awareness about the dangers of downloading random executables off of shady websites, and I imagine malicious actors would have had a heyday getting a foothold on machines everywhere.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So one of the things about this was that the snake malware has gone through, if I, if I remember reading correctly, a few different names, uh, a few different iterations, a few different installers. Uh, there was a mention of something like jpinst.exe, Setup. I remember reading that there was variants such as an installer for Notepad++ or 7-zip. We have talked about some adversary tactics on this podcast before, but I think this is yet another example of where adversaries are going after the things that users are likely downloading. This is one of the toughest steps about getting your executable RAN is you want to make it something that is actually going to be run. And in this case right here, they had to pick the timeframe that they were in. The hypothesis is that it's been evolved over the past 20 years. The idea that it's been around for at least 20 years or has, let's say, installed for 20 years means once again, you know, we had to go after things that people were looking for at that point in time. And one of the earliest iterations, or one of the iterations that they talked about in the documentation, was an open source project for viewing JPEG files. Huh. And you just got to think about, you know, these days, if, if I told you I was going to send you a piece of malware or not malware, but an executable that would help you view JPEG files, you'd probably think to yourself, like, I, I, I just double click it and it works, right? <laughs> um, but you know, back in the day, twenty years ago, things like you know, hey, I, I, I need an application to manage my photos and help me view my camera pictures and things like that. That was a, a very legitimate issue that some people had was how do I you know do this thing
0: right? Or maybe in the Napster Limewire era, there was people downloading things that maybe they didn't want to pay for. There
1: was that. There was definitely plenty of software piracy taking place. There was lots of I don't want to pay for this thing, so I'm just going to download anything that has the right name associated with it. I am not that much of a user of this tool anymore, but I used to be a huge user of Notepad++ back in the day. So to see Notepad++ mentioned in this was a really good kind of. I remember how popular it was. I, you know, Notepad++ and 7zip are two applications that I would not have been able to live without for many years. And, you know, luckily they are kind of free software, but in other cases, if there was software that someone needed and it was paid software or they didn't have their license key anymore or anything like that, they'd probably end up resorting to some other, some other variant there. You know, interestingly enough, I've actually got a small little war story about this, which kind of brings all this in together here. I was once doing some threat hunting work with a a friend of mine and a friend of Lima Charlie's, I won't name who, but he will know this when he hears this. And we found a an Iranian-based malware threat buried inside of a cracked copy of Burp Suite. And the the developer was trying to download an illegally cracked version of Burp Suite that actually had malware-based inside. And, you know, interestingly enough, you think to yourself, why on earth would you be downloading pirated software in the first place? And it's like, well, adversaries knew that that's what people were looking for, so they buried their malware in there as well. So yeah, it's an interesting way. But it's very clear that Snake was very successful in getting installed. And, you know, we'll talk more about the malware, obviously, but I think it is a fascinating case study of just how to get your malware installed in an environment, you know, given the time frame. If, you know, Chris, if you and I sent around an email to a bunch of people these days that said, hey, use this executable to open your JPEGs, we might not get much traction. But if we sent around one that said, "Hey, here's you know a version of 7zip that everyone can use to extract anything you want and stuff," that was a valuable thing to have back in the day. So, with that said, you know it's 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 definitely an interesting case study of, of how to get your stuff run on target computers.
0: Okay, so let's talk about the snake malware itself. I'm going to read directly from the public statement released by the Department of Justice here. Quote. The U.S. government has been investigating Snake and Snake-related malware tools for nearly 20 years. The U.S. government has monitored FSB officers assigned to Turla, conducting daily operations using Snake from a known FSB facility in Ryzon, Russia. Snake has been the subject of several cybersecurity industry reports throughout its existence. Turla has applied numerous upgrades and revisions and selectively deployed it, all to ensure that Snake remains Turla's most sophisticated long-term cyber espionage malware implant. Unless disrupted, the snake implant persists on a compromised computer system indefinitely, typically undetected by the machine's owner or authorized users. The FBI has observed snake persist on particular computers despite a victim's efforts to remediate the compromise. End quote. So much to unpack in these couple paragraphs. So the U.S. government is known of this malware for almost its entire existence. Is that, am I reading that right? So this is,
1: this is the interesting thing about this. Uh,
0: so when I mentioned earlier, when these
1: Intel agencies get together and they start sharing notes, a couple of things can happen there. Uh, one of them will be that they will start to, again, find the missing puzzle pieces. And someone may know about, you know, let's let's say you have a puzzle with, with uh, 10 pieces in it. Let's just keep the math simple. You might know of seven. The other three, though, are really critical in finishing. Maybe they're like three border pieces or something, right? The picture is just not complete without it. And then someone comes along and says, oh, I have I have those missing three puzzle pieces. And then everything kind of opens up. And it's it's a little bit of an interesting position because you step back and you say, wow, we've known about this thing for, you know, 10 years, let's say. Right. But I got those three missing puzzle pieces yesterday. So you knew about it, but you, you didn't, maybe you didn't know about it. Yeah.
0: You, right? you knew something was going on, but probably didn't Yeah. Yeah. The you scope knew something was it.
1: happening. You know, it's kind of like where there's smoke, there's fire. But if we never actually go investigate, all we see is smoke. We don't, we don't know what the cause of the fire is. The, the other thing to add on to this as well. And I think the quote brought this out is that, uh, Snake has been subject to several cybersecurity reports throughout its existence. This is something that I've actually run into professionally as well. Where you're investigating the trees, not the forest, and what's probably happened multiple times is there have been incident responders in public and private capacity who have you know because if there's if if a system is compromised or if an organization knows that it's been breached because something just doesn't add up, then there's a problem there, right? There's there's an issue there, and there's been some times where someone may have stumbled upon Snake and have been like, oh. There's a piece of malware here that's doing a thing that it's not supposed to be doing, right? Wipe, reissue, reimage, and move on your way. And if that environment was never recompromised because maybe they got what they wanted, maybe it wasn't a high-value target, who knows? But if that environment was never recompromised, they might simply say, all right, cool, we solved the problem, boom, we're on our way. You never, you know, no one ever stepped back, and it, this is what intel agencies are really good at doing. No one ever stepped back and said, wait a second, these indicators were also over here, were also over here, and this correlates to that. You know, it's kind of like those massive link diagrams, and there's an internet meme about this, right? That, <laughs> yeah. that third, third rock, um, I, forget, I forget what it's, it's always called. Sunny but, always yeah. sunny in Philadelphia. Always sunny in Philadelphia, the kind of like, you know, going crazy thing. But sometimes that's what the analysis takes in order for you to see the forest and say, oh my goodness, this is all actually related. Now, there's someone out there, I don't know who they are. But there's someone out there who 10, 15 years ago saw snake malware and didn't know what it was. They didn't know what they were looking at. They didn't know how perverse and how severe this issue was. And they just maybe simply were like, wipe the system, issue new thing, and move on. And that's not anyone's fault. You know, Some folks, from an incident response perspective, from a security perspective, sometimes your job is to get the business back to normal, It's not to shuttle up every single indicator you ever come across in the hopes that you might be uncovering nation state espionage or anything like that. So I think from that angle, there's plenty of reports. And I'm assuming, you know, the U.S. government did their work, did their homework on this. I'm assuming they probably dug through multiple reports. And I'll tell you, as an incident responder and for anyone who listens to this, who's done incident response, you'll read incident reports sometimes or you'll read threat intelligence reports. And you'll have these flashbacks and be like, oh, that's what that was. you know. And once again, you, you may have come across an environment that had just been compromised. You only saw the first indicators. Or maybe the attackers were long gone, so you only saw the tail end of things. Maybe you were right in the thick of the middle of it and then never got to final stages. But long story short, it takes a lot of combined effort in order to paint that entire picture out.
0: I imagine that these industry reports, if they're published, they'd get back to intelligence in Russia and they'd be able to adjust their uh, game, in a sense, to sort of counter the information that was coming out. Is this one of the arguments against open data sharing?
1: No, I think it's... So first off, two parts of that. First off, you're right. And in fact, there was actually some call outs in the Snake malware reports that talked about how the protocol layering or the different protocols, the agnostic protocol capabilities of Snake actually allowed for retooling if they needed to and allowed them to, I think, basically take exactly what you called out. If an intel agency or a threat report or a malware report or whatever called out a piece of snake or something, you know, they basically revealed or disclosed one of their capabilities, they could go back and retool that. That is a common thing for adversaries to do. You and I have talked about kind of the resurgence and the never dying approach of ransomware where they get caught and they just go and make a couple changes and then they're right back at it, you know? I would say that open information, open intel sharing is an absolute necessity inside of cybersecurity. Now, I think timing is perhaps the important part. We don't want to, and this is one thing about this whole snake slash, you know, Operation Medusa thing, which is very important, is you want to make sure you get the timing right on when you share massive threats like this. You don't want to just, you don't want to have someone in some random account on Twitter who's just saying, hey, I found this malware. Here's all these indicators. And then it just gets buried by the noise without anyone making any sort of remediation efforts or releasing indicators or threat detection capabilities or anything like that, you know? So there is definitely a timing piece to it. However, you know, it all comes down to the preparation of others. And also, and this part, I don't have any insight into, but who's infected as well. The, The who's infected, are the ones that can be really troublesome if there are some very critical very very integral parts of the different victims or the different targets that have been impacted here and if you releasing this information means they pull the plug and some country loses electricity for 10 days obviously we're very careful about what we disclose and how we do that you know so usually there are some typical factors physical harm kinetic action things like that That may slow down or prevent immediate disclosure. But I would argue the more we tell adversaries that we're right on their heels, the harder we make it for them. There's a former colleague of mine, gentleman I used to work with, uh, his Twitter handle is impose cost Andrew Thompson. He's a firm believer and I love his theories about this, which not theories, his actions actually. I love his actions that say the more expensive I can make it for an adversary to do their thing, the harder it's going to be for them to do that repetitively right? because I'm making it expensive and I'm making it hard for them to find success. And what I really like is I really like that idea of the more techniques, tactics, and procedures and tooling and everything else we can disclose, the less the adversaries can use. And eventually, maybe we'll paint them into a corner where they only have one or two options
0: left and we're going to catch them. Yeah, they, they only have so much runway like a startup, right? If, yeah, if they, exactly. They're not because having let's success. Be clear.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, let's be clear. What they're doing is illegal. You know, I mean, there's only so many different ways to rob a bank. Um, but at the end of the day, everything that you're doing is illegal and punishable and sanctionable and arrestable and indictable and so many other verbs that are out there, <laughs> things that maybe are not verbs. But my point is this. There's only so much runway. I like that phrase. There's only so much runway. And also, it is another way to inform others as well. There are some organizations out there, again, I don't know who, but there are some organizations or some analysts out there who read that snake malware report or maybe heard about it or got a synopsis of it and were like, oh, that was it. That's what we needed. There's also some organizations out there who had detections for snake malware turned on, had alerts fire, and had their environment cleaned up of this and if we didn't have those types this type of information sharing we wouldn't we wouldn't have ever seen that ever found it
0: uh the other thing that caught me in that those couple paragraphs there is uh they say it persists indefinitely are we talking like a boot kit or is it just you know on the computers in the network and then when you clean one up it moves laterally back over to that uninfected now clean machine
1: so i read that as and and there might be something more for me to look into. But I read that as it doesn't have an expiration on the persistence mechanism. Um, I believe the malware got installed or gets installed as a service, as a Windows service that actually mirrors. And we'll talk more about the malware in just a moment. But it, it gets installed as a Windows service that mirrors off of the W E R or the Windows error reporting fault executable. I, I don't think that persistence mechanism had an expiration. On it. I don't think that service had an expiration. So when I heard uh, indefinite, I heard this thing is not going to be turned off anytime soon. Like the adversaries didn't have a, you know, extract these docs and then get out objective. It was more of implants there. I think the other type of indefinite or the other reason indefinitely comes up when talking about snake malware. Is the malware was constructed in such a way that it was self updating? They were able to utilize different protocols if they needed to. If we zoom out enough, it was single purpose, right? Collecting data and sending it back to its creators. But uh, what I mean by that is it had multiple protocol support. It had it was it was meant to be lean and clean, if you will. It was designed to continue to run. There were kernel drivers and a custom DLL and things like that. So there were a few different elements. But none of those elements had an expiration date to them. It was built to to last as long as it possibly could.
0: Okay. Uh, Another paragraph from the Department of Justice, quote, Snake provides its Turla operators the ability to remotely deploy selected malware tools to extend Snake's functionality to identify and steal sensitive information and documents stored on a particular machine. Most importantly, the worldwide collection of snake-compromised computers acts as a covert peer-to-peer network, which utilizes customized communication protocols designed to hamper detection, monitoring, and collection efforts by Western and other signals intelligence services. Turla uses the snake network to route data exfiltrated from target systems through numerous relay nodes scattered around the world back to Turla operators in Russia. End quote. Wow. So, despite researchers knowing of its existence, it was difficult to monitor. How were they hiding their communication? Were you able to find out anything about this custom communications protocol?
1: I did. I I read a little bit into this. and, And I will say that the CISA release and some of the other reports that are out there have some of the best breakdowns. And I love these reverse engineering malware reports. It's great to see so much work be put into it and just kind of, you know, how it came about. So there was a couple different ways that communication was being hidden. The first one, and I've talked about this before, was a a custom network protocol stack that allowed them to utilize different types of protocols if need be. There was a really good example in there which talked about how the piece of malware could switch between kind of HTTP or a raw TCP socket
0: if need be. So moving up and down the TCP IP stack, the different envelopes there.
1: Yeah, and what that would allow them to do is to pick the right protocol that would let them blend in with the traffic that was there. So Cisco gave a good example: uh, if using a compromised HTTP server as part of the Snake P2P network, the operators could utilize HTTP, the custom HTTP you know protocol, if you will, and thereby blend in with legitimate traffic. And kind of what we're getting at there, from a defender slash detection perspective, is if I've got an HTTP server that's running. I'm likely not gonna packet capture HTTP traffic on that server, primarily because that's its purpose. That's what it should be doing. My threat hunting guidelines might have me look for things that are not HTTP being served out of there. So the malware's goal then was to say, hey, let me blend in with everything that I can. And subsequently, that allowed them to stay hidden for for quite a while. The other side that I'll add to this when we're talking about Snake's communication protocol is there was a use of there was an encryption layer and a transport layer. Uh, And what this does is it gave them like these two adjacent layers being right there, it actually allowed some sort of independent functionality between the two. So interestingly enough, and I'm quoting directly from the report here, any custom snake network protocol can employ an encryption overlay without any change to the encryption layer code. And, And you know, I don't really like to compliment malware authors. I think I've stated that before on this podcast too. But when you read about the the different architectures that they utilize or the different way that this was built and was repurposed, it's a really elegant way to say, how do I communicate with this piece of malware and stay hidden inside of the traffic that I'm trying to blend in with? And I think this is a good example right there. And then it also, there is some examples that talk about, allowing the uh, if there's if you've got a compromised machine that legitimately allows ssh then snake could be utilizing its raw tcp protocol instead of custom http and these are just examples red teamers and pen testers will do the exact same thing when they deploy implants or c2 they'll have to pick which protocol to be using sometimes the malware or the c2 or the beacon that i'm using can switch between protocols depending on if i'm evading detections or not and i think Snake had the exact same capability, is it just allowed them so much flexibility in communicating with Snake directly, not to mention the P2P side of things, which is then the other layer to this. The Snake malware themselves were also communicating back and forth, and that gave another huge advantage because it was yet another way to hide myself as a malware operator by having my malware go two or three layers deep in communication rather than a hub and spoke model.
0: Yeah, I, I was reading that too. And I guess one of the tactics you could take using a distribution like that is is sending uh, packets down different routes so that even if somebody was able to capture the streams through one route, uh, they wouldn't necessarily have all the pieces of that puzzle to put together.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's that's an important takeaway about this as well. You asked me just a moment ago, if we release open intelligence and my adversaries make a, make a change, is, is that a reason not to have open intelligence out there? And I think the use of a P2P network like this is actually forward thinking. And we know what they're looking for. We know how defenders are monitoring networks. So let's do something a little bit out of the ordinary. And let's also not reveal our hand too much. And this goes back to that information sharing side of things. Let's just hypothesize. And let's say that Snake was configured to communicate with one of 10 IP addresses, right? Well, then guess what? I find those 10 IP addresses. I correlate that between all the malware that I'm seeing. And boom, I've got this thing straightforward, right? But if every Snake instance communicates with perhaps a different peer or a different kind of section or a different part of that overall compromised network, it also makes it harder to find that correlation between the two. And I think that was another way that they stayed hidden for so long was they didn't make it a straightforward cut and dry C2 communication. You might have some instances of snake that reached out to other compromised snakes. Some of them might have reached back home. And then it also, if we think about the reverse, not the reaching out, but the reaching in, the adversaries were also able to utilize P2P networks as kind of jump points. So I could send, let's say I've got two compromised systems. I could send commands to one and have it redirect those over to two. And if someone's investigating the second one, they're not going to pick up on first off where I'm at. And that other traffic might blend in as well. So just the sheer overlapping and combination of network protocols here is probably what helped it stay hidden for about as long as it
0: did. It's really fascinating stuff. And the way they describe it, Snake is almost like a tiny persistence mechanism that just enables them to push down other tools, including updating itself.
1: Yeah. And that's something uh, I know we talked about that from that persistence perspective, but this is another forward thinking part of this, you know, this piece of malware has been around for 20 years or so and the forward thinking ability to say, you know what, I know I'm going to want to utilize features in the future. I don't know what they are just yet, but I know I'm going to want to utilize future features I'm gonna build in the ability for this thing to be self-updating. Very future forward thinking. You and I have talked about multiple malware families on this podcast that are kind of single use malware families for lack of a better term, you know, information stealers. I might write an information stealer that targets a current version of Mac OS or Windows, but then some new thing comes out and my malware is dead in the water, right? Whereas in this case, you know, the whole thing was, if I remember correctly, the whole thing was written in C. They utilized open source libraries that were well-known, that had code that blended in with other applications that were out there. It was written to be lean and clean and it was written to be self-updating. Again, thinking ahead to the future and saying there might be things that I wanna take advantage of that I don't know what they are yet, but I'm going to build out the capability to integrate those if need be. Again, it also leans on the different protocols that were baked into this. I mean, looking through some of the network communication stuff that Cisco called out, Uh, And I'm going to, again, read through this right here. Snakes network comms are encrypted, fragmented, and set using custom methodologies, utilize protocols, raw TCP, UDP, HTTP, SMTP, DNS. And again, functionality also existed for UDP, ICMP, and raw IP traffic. My point is this. When you build that much capability and future forward thinking self-updating capabilities in it, you're in there for the long haul. So Chris, when you described it as like a tiny persistence mechanism that enables them to update and stay current, it's a very, very apt description because it's so future forward. And again, not to compliment the authors, but more to look at it from a piece of malware perspective, a piece of software perspective, this thing had a long active shelf life with it.
0: Yeah. And I imagine, you know, once they had a foothold in an org, they would have also had mechanisms for moving laterally onto other machines on the network, so they could maintain their presence over the long term as, as infected machines aged out.
1: Yeah, and this this actually this becomes then kind of the biggest concern is once you have a piece of malware like this that is so well as staying hidden. Let's let's just say that Snake was the the door, the side door that you could use to walk into an organization when your entry mechanism or your persistent beacon lives for so long doesn't really matter what the I don't want to say it doesn't matter but it 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 really makes it hard to eradicate the malware completely and it makes it hard to eradicate the threat completely so I'm gonna take a shot in the dark and say there were some organizations out there they likely got compromised you know compromised and I'm using quotes here again and again and again but in fact it was just one long compromise they probably just found Snake at various points in time, and we're never able to correlate things back together, you know? And and I think that's kind of where it becomes a, you know, it becomes scary for some organizations to think about if you never actually uncover that foothold and all you see is like machine N plus one, but you never find machine one, it makes it really tough to really say that you've remediated a breach or you've remediated a thing, if you will. The other thing that I'll add in here as well is that Snake had. Kind of like passive data exfiltration associated with it and things like that. And, and, you know, again, what that did is it just was another way for them to have this long running implant. And Chris, I think you and I have talked about nation state operations before, but, you know, if my target is one that I want to have persistence in for years, it's a perfect kind of malware to keep that persistence in there for years and just keep monitoring for communications and plans and all other things that I would like to see, you know?
0: So yeah, it was May 8th, 2023, Operation Medusa was executed by the FBI pursuant to a search warrant issued by U.S. Magistrate Judge Cheryl L. Pollack, I hope I'm saying your name correctly, for the Eastern District of New York, which authorized remote access to compromised computers. Another quote from the DOJ here, quote, through analysis of the snake malware and the snake network, the FBI developed the capability to decrypt and decode snake communications. With information gleaned from monitoring the snake network and analyzing snake malware, the FBI developed a tool named Perseus, which establishes communication sessions with the snake malware implant on a particular computer and issues commands that cause the snake implant to disable itself without affecting the host computer or legitimate applications on the computer, end quote. This is pretty heavy stuff. They basically studied it for a long time to figure out the way to communicate and managed to construct a way to take it over before commanding it to destroy itself on computers that they didn't own. The fact that the judge gave the FBI permission to operate on other people's computers is something huge in my mind. Like, I I know an issue we see with endpoints that are running particular agents sometimes get uh, broken by updates. And I can imagine there could be a scenario here where if the code wasn't written properly or somebody didn't test something properly, When they go to disable this malware, they end up disabling a bunch of business systems. Um, How common is this?
1: Yeah, so this, this is something I would say you asked me in the very beginning about these types of coordinated takedowns, and is this something we've seen before? I think takedowns, jurisdictional information sharing, press releases, reports, and things like that are definitely more common than the FBI actually issuing commands to bring a piece of malware down or self-delete. This is not as common. In fact, I do remember it was a couple of years ago. I think there was a massive Microsoft Outlook exploit that was taking place. Or there was presence of potential for uh, Microsoft Outlook vulnerabilities. And there was a huge deal because I think the FBI actually got a court order to go in and remediate or or force an update on government computers. And that was, you know, there was a really interesting point there of, well, why didn't they just issue the updates themselves? And I think what the FBI did is came back and said, this update is so critical, the the thing and it might not be public, but the reason why we need to update this or delete this malware or whatever the action is is so critical and here's the evidence that backs it up. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is when the FBI goes, and I think parts of this were redacted, but when the FBI goes in front of the court and says, we need to get access to other people's computers, there's a whole bunch of laws, US-based laws that come into place and say, you better have some really, really special circumstances to make this a thing, right? And here's the special, and, and what are those? You know, and then it's probably a closed door discussion. But here are those special circumstances, the things that you need to know about. And it's probably very, very limited purview who gets to actually see that and whatnot. But my point is this. It is very, you need very compelling evidence in order to get this done. And I would imagine that given the scope and the size and everything that we're seeing here and probably the types of data that are being exfiltrated and who the data is going to, And last bullet point, current geopolitical global affairs and whatnot, (laughs) I would imagine there was some probably some pretty compelling evidence that led to the judge saying, yep, go for it. But I will say, especially from a U.S. perspective, this is all I's are dotted, all T's are crossed. It is perfect to the point of why they're doing this particular thing. There uh, may have even been, and then this gets to the other side of it as well. There may have also been a a FBI-only type of thing, which means the FBI has reverse-engineered the malware enough to understand it. They have the most knowledge about it. They've also created this Perseus tool, which you talked about. And the FBI says, hey, look, we need to use this tool to delete this thing. And there may have been a question at some point which says, well, why don't you just open-source this tool so anyone can use it? And then we'll issue an advisory saying, hey, everyone go download this thing and run that. And they may have come back and said, we don't want to reveal how we know what we know. And this tool will reveal that, you know, I I use, I've used this once before as an analogy, not on this podcast, but with someone before, but, but imagine the concept of a bicycle. Imagine that the gearbox and the chains and everything were enclosed inside of a box that no one could see. And only one person in the world Made them and knew how they were made, and that secret was passed down forever, right? The secret recipe of Coca Cola, if you will. Very similar capacity. If I take the box off or share with people how I do that thing, they're going to be able to do it too. But more importantly, they're also going to figure out how I got there. So, by the FBI taking that stance, and I'm not saying everything I labeled is what happened here, but there may also be a position of we don't want to reveal everything that we've known about this. Or maybe we don't want to reveal our target list. We don't want to reveal who is taking this down because it might send the adversary into a recompromised state, right? So lots of different reasons why you might have the FBI involved. But yeah, the fact that the judge gave permission for this, there was probably some very compelling evidence as to why this needed to be done by them.
0: I wonder if we'll see more of this kind of action, given how successful it seems to have been. And that always makes me nervous because I can see, yeah, it makes sense in this point, but it's it sort of becomes that slippery slope, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, so it's funny you bring this up. The Outlook patching, the Microsoft Exchange, Microsoft Exchange Outlook patching that occurred a few years ago in a very similar vein, threw the exact same kind of question out there, right? Well, oh, is the FBI going to be in charge of vulnerability patching now? And that kind of stuff. And it's like, no. These are, I'm not going to call them single use, but I'm going to call them point in time compelling evidence. Think about things like maybe a search warrant or some other legal document that allows you to do a certain thing in time. They get given expiration dates. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, I think there was an expiration date on this, uh, you know, th- this, this order as well. I, I believe there was an expiration date as to how long they had to actually remotely access compromised systems. And for that reason, you know, it still follows within the the legal guidelines. Judge orders like this or judge allowances like this or permission like this. In my opinion, this is not a free for all. The FBI can now go do everything they want on anyone's computer. Right. The one thing that I'll keep in focus for everyone here, it was it was not a five minute discussion. It was not a, hey, judge, you know, we need to get access to these eight computers. What do you say? We're the FBI. Do you trust us? You know, there, there's a lot of pieces that go behind the scenes in order to actually get this done. And I would, I would highly recommend for anyone who's interested kind of in this side of things, the affidavit, the PDF version of the affidavit is 35 pages long. Yes, there are some redactions, but the FBI does talk about things like which judicial district the compromised computers fall into. What are the U.S. codes that give them the authority to do these things? What is the purpose? What are they trying to do? What's happening here? Why are they going through and doing it? Again, this is not a blanket FISA court request to just do whatever they want on computers. This is a public, here's why we think we knew what we know. I will read this out right here. Request for delayed notice. Uh, The FBI intends to provide notice to affected victims of the execution as soon as practicable following the execution of the warrant. So they actually mention and say in there, that this warrant is just one component of a coordinated international technical operation that could be compromised by the premature disclosure of the warrant itself. So they've actually gone through and kind of described and said, this isn't just us. This is a global takedown. This is lots of teams working together. But if one of us fails, if any piece of the giant takedown cog fails, we all fail. Because if the Russian FSB figures out what's happening and we are delayed in our action, guess what? Snake is a capable piece of malware that can morph and implement new features and stuff if need be. They could just go and change all of their protocols or self-destroy everything at one time. And then we're back to square one, which is where we
0: don't want to be. So Perseus is kind of like anti-malware malware. How did they use Perseus to destroy the snake? So I, first off, I
1: love all the Greek mythology references here. Operation Medusa taken down by the Perseus malware and things like that. So it, Perseus, for all intents and purposes, I, I don't want to know. I don't know if I want to call it a piece of malware more like the the savior that came and took <laughs> down. No. So um, Perseus is a tool that the FBI has. And they developed this to be able to identify the network traffic that the snake malware had tried to obfuscate. Long story short, and if you go through and read the technical documentation, they do talk about how some of the encryption implemented into snake was actually not as secure as maybe the malware authors thought, or maybe they just got away with it for so long that they didn't really care about it. But they basically figured out a way to reverse engineer the network traffic that snake was using or was trying to use for obfuscation and encryption purposes. So for that reason, they were able to monitor and figure out just how big the snake network actually was. And this is another part that goes into the collection of intelligence is, you know, sometimes I'll let my intelligence run for a little bit just so I can figure out how big a network is, right? If I take down the first infected computer I ever see, I may not know just how big the infection is and the heads of the snake continue growing, if you will. So the Perseus malware was used to, first off, the FBI first figured out how big the network was, and then Perseus was used to actually mimic Snake's commands to then destroy itself. Uh, It was when transmitted by Perseus from an FBI computer, it instructed the Snake malware to be disabled. It overwrote some of the implant without interacting or impacting anything legitimate on the system and then self-deleted. And this is a really novel way to kind of, interestingly enough, get rid of your malware. First off, if you think about the play on evasion here, so let's just say hypothetically that Snake has different monitoring or different evasion techniques built in that looked for things like antivirus software or incident response software or things like that. You know, this is one way to get around that. The second side of it is by by mimicking Snake's built-in commands, you actually hide under the radar a little bit. So let's just say, Chris, you and I designed a piece of malware and the word word kill malware, if that command ever came through, the malware would self-destruct itself, right? Well, you and I would probably also want to write a logging or a detection mechanism for when kill malware ever came through. And if that command ever came through and you and I didn't issue it, well, we know someone's found us. So by being able to mimic and look like snake C2 communication or look like snake commands, it was another way to kind of stay hidden if it was monitoring itself.
0: Uh, I think the docs also specifically mentioned that although the FBI's actions took down the snake malware, they did not or were not able to remove any other malware that may have been installed via snake. Like we mentioned earlier, this was sort of a persistence mechanism that then downloaded other tools is there any way that people who were infected by snake can determine if they have other malware on their system? I know the FBI is providing guidance to this. Will they offer services beyond the malware removal now that those people know they were infected?
1: So this is is where security teams and MDR and MSSP services and everything like that have to take over. They get leaned on a little bit. And as I mentioned, The FBI's jurisdiction when it comes to eradicating malware and things like that is going to be limited to what the warrant provides them for. And it's also going to be very point in time. So getting rid of the snake malware, using my analogy earlier, if you think of snake as kind of like a side door with no lock into an organization, closing that door prevents any additional damage from taking place. It doesn't remedy what's already happened inside. Um, And I think I'm going to take a shot in the dark and assume that what the FBI wanted to do here, or what these various organizations in different countries wanted to do, is they wanted to cut off the access first and then say, all right, the access is gone. So they can't re embed themselves. Now we go through and, hey, security teams, you know this thing's there. Now go clean up all the other stuff that's in there and do it with a little more peace of mind that they're not going to break back in. Right. So it's kind of like, Again, same example, let's say that side door gets busted open. Someone comes in, they destroy a store or whatever it is. They they completely destroy the insides of the building. The first thing we're going to want to do before we clean up is we're going to want to secure the doors so that no one can get in and make the damage worse. So I think what they did in this case is they cut off access to make it easier for security teams to then go and clean up other malware that had been in there. But I wouldn't I don't think that we'd see the FBI actually go hands on with this. The other thing I'll add here is that the various technical reports that have come out, and of course, we've had follow-ups from you know every security company out there afterwards. They've gone through and also provided multiple detections and things you can look for, everything from PowerShell scripts to Suricata rules to Yara rules to all sorts of things that can be used to help identify snake infection. I would utilize those to see if you've got any residual artifacts.
0: I can see we're coming at time here. I know you got a meeting after this, Matt, so I'll wrap it up. You know, we've kind of covered this thing end to end at a fairly high level, uh, dove in a little bit. Have we learned anything from this? Is there anything we can take away from this going forward to sort of better protect ourselves, better protect our organizations? What's the takeaway here?
1: Yeah, biggest takeaway is that adversaries are going to continue trying to achieve their objectives. State nexus, state espionage, long term campaigns, implementation, things like that. They're not going away anytime soon. And you know, you gotta think think of the past twenty years, all the different cybersecurity trends, threats, things that have come up. Like this malware has seen some stuff. You know what I mean? Um, and it's the huge takeaway here is that be vigilant, reading up on reports, watching out. And if there's just something that just doesn't fit, investigate it to the best of your ability. And sure enough, you know, you may uncover kind of one of the starting points here, but do your best to uncover threats and follow them back as best as you can. As an incident responder, one of the best pieces of advice I'll ever give anyone, you need to go all the way back to what you think is the potential entry vector and hopefully close off the adversary from gaining any more access into the environment because you never know just how long they've been there, what other damage they might be doing. The second key takeaway I would, I would bring to this as well is follow up on threat intel reports and things that come out. Um, You know, it's one thing to simply install a piece of software and say, hey, I'm protected. We're good to go. It's another thing to understand exactly what was happening, understanding what Snake was and what it does and how it might be impacting your organization. I mean, the other thing that I'll bring out here is with a 20 year history, Snake has survived recessions. It's 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 survived wars. It's survived mergers and acquisitions and huge company shifts and industry changes and industry births and deaths and things like that. So there's a lot of things. If you take a company that's 30 years old, they've got a lot of stuff they've done in those past 20 years. It's important to know how network security and information security traversed across those different layers. And I'm getting really meta with this answer here. But my point is this, it's a 20 year malware campaign There's lots of things that have happened during that time. Staying vigilant on security is perhaps the one consistent that would have helped everyone throughout this for anyone who was infected. So make sure your security, you know, make sure you're up to date, make sure you're patching, make sure your users are educated, make sure we're being careful and not letting campaigns like this get as successful as they've been. And just, again, make it really tough, impose cost. make it really hard for adversaries to continue to find success. And they'll likely either hopefully stop or try ways that will have uh, you know much easier detections built for. But that being said, Chris, thank you so much for having me on here. This was a fun one to break down and whilst I don't hope we have any more of these in the near future, I would love to do this again with some more malware and more more threat campaigns in the future as well.
0: Yeah, no, I think it was really great. And a lot of a lot of good good stuff to take away from this. So, uh, appreciate you sir and look forward to the next one.
1: Likewise. Thanks, Chris. I'll talk yeah, to you again take soon. Take care, sir. Bye. Bye.
0: And that concludes episode 34 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at LimaCharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel at slack.limacharly.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in and we'll see you on the next episode.